Hey, everybody. This is Perch, and uh, I'm here with Joe Corolla. How are you? I'm all right, Perch. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm especially doing great because we're, we're getting a chance to talk to the great Joe Casey. Joe, how are you? I'm, I'm great, as you said. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, I, I, man, you've, you've, you've done so much in comics. So it's just a real uh, pleasure to get a chance to, to chat with you and, and learn what you're doing and, and kind of, uh, yeah, I've, I've read a bunch of your interviews, so a lot of stuff to talk about. Oh, God. All right. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think we got to start with the question that everyone's probably asking themselves right now, especially since you also worked with them. How often do people confuse you or say Joe Kelly instead of Joe Casey? They do until they see us standing next to each other. Then there's no mistaking whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, yeah that, that's you good. You worked with uh, you worked with Joe on uh, with the uh, on doing uh, Man of Action Studios and Ben Ten and all that, right? I still have and still do. Yeah. How uh, I, I know starting from a place opposite comics, but my kids happen to going be going through uh, Ben Ten right now and and oh, great. Ben, uh, loving absolutely loving that series. But uh, how how does it tell me a little bit about that world? And you, you mentioned you're still working on what what kind of material you're working on now? Well, I mean, we created Ben Ten about 15 years ago mm -hmm. and uh, sold it to Cartoon Network. We kind of worked on the show in the beginning. We were consulted and we kind of did some things just to get it off the ground. And then we kind of went off and did other animation jobs based on the success of that show. And then a couple of years ago, we came back to Cartoon Network to actually run the show for yep. the, la the last iteration of it, um, where we brought him back to being 10 years old and we we did a real reboot of the whole thing yeah because we'd seen 10 years of what they'd gotten right and what they'd gotten wrong and we were able to kind of distill it all down into something that we thought was the the best version of it so far and it seemed to work we went uh four seasons and a couple of specials and it worked out it was good yeah it, it definitely it's one of those um it's one of those shows that I think a lot of kids really love and, and it's uh, certainly been successful. And um, you're, you, you have something planned uh, with Sonic. Is that right? Yes. We're doing the Sonic, the next Sonic animated show uh, for Netflix. I'm not quite sure when that's going to come out. We're right in the middle of it nice. production wise now. So animation takes a while. So it might be next year. It might be the year after. I don't know. Excellent. And, and how, how is it going from, uh, you know, you, you obviously, you, you're one of the people who worked on for all the major companies in comics. You've written a bit of everything. Um, how, how is it different now? I mean, and, and do you prefer one over the other or is it kind of just both complementary? Well, you mean in terms of comics and animation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, animation pays better. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's, that's a big motivator, but I do love comics. I mean, I, I've never stopped doing comics, and um, but I just can't do it. It's just not feasible to do it for the money. To when, you know, when I first started out, I didn't make much money as a beginning writer, but I could make up for it in quantity and also being young and having no dependents and yeah. having to you know just had to make my rent. So I could write four, five, six things a month easily and happily. And um, but even that is not as would not be cost effective now yeah. i mean not at the not at the big publishers certainly or anywhere else probably no i, I mean how so and going in the kind of the opposite direction um how wh what caused you to to, to get into comics how do you how do you start that journey 
Well, I mean, I loved comics when I was a kid. Obviously, I was of the generation that the comic comic book seemed to mature as I was maturing. Mm -hmm. So I never left. I never just right as I was, I might have phased out. The 80s happened and, you know, it was just a whole new thing. So that kept me invested and I just I never got out. And then um, at some point I moved out to California, uh, to Los Angeles to play music. And it wasn't long before I realized I probably need a more stable source of income. So how about being a writer? That, that sounded uh, like a way to go. <laughs> and, um, so, it, but the other thing was in Los Angeles at that point was a, there was a sort of a community of compo creators that were all working. Um, mm -hmm. Guys like uh, Steve Siegel, who's, I work with a man of action, yeah, James exactly. Robinson, uh, Howard Chaikin was out here. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Brian Holguin, who's mm -hmm. a writer for uh, Image back in the 90s and in the 2000s. Um, so, I loved comics, and when I saw guys who were doing it for a living, it kind of dropped the veil from my eyes. You know, I, we see other people doing what you want to do and, and how they live and, and how they do it. It wasn't just shit that I'd been reading in the comics journal and Amazing Heroes. It was actually right there. Um, yeah. So that sort of spurred me to sort of pursue that and started doing some what we used to call no-money black-and-white books. Um Mm -hmm. And by some stroke of luck, um, knowing James Robinson at that point, he very generously opened the door for me at Marvel because he was doing some books in the X office at that point. And for him, I think it was just a temporary uh, gig, but he was very, very kind in uh, introducing me to those editors and, and basically handing over the, the, the gig on cable, which is my first um, yeah. monthly. So I owe, I owe James really my whole career because it, I, I just took a leap from obscurity to what was then a top 20 book. Yeah. Yeah. And, no. uh, it was a big deal. And so, you know, I, I never, uh, I've never stopped being indebted to James to this yeah. day. No, James. James is great. I, I went to a burlesque show with him once. He's, he's <laughs> I bet he's you a great did. guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I mean, for a lot of people, it'd be a dream come true. You you decide, you know, you're a comic fan. You want to get into actually working in comics. You get a start in the X office. And the X office, in this case, in the uh, I mean, this was in the '90s when things were absolutely just red hot. Where that all those comics were concerned. It was red hot, generally speaking. This was still after the bust, though. Right. So that's true. It yeah. felt like I was getting into comics at the time when it was the most dead end job. Even though I, it was, I loved it. I didn't feel like that at the time. But if you look at the history and the sort of the arc of the industry, that I mean, Marvel was had declared bankruptcy. It was grim. But you know, my pager was so low; they weren't breaking the bank hiring me. So it was all, it was all good. It was good for me. And was I mean so when you're 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 writing these comics you're you're getting in you're 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 starting this career I mean obviously things had uh, Marvel had declared bankruptcy and everything else did it was that kind of on your mind do you do you remember was a team conscious of this or was it the goal just to put out comics at that point I think everybody had their head in the sand and just wanted to put out the next month of books yeah. and I was sort of I came in 
it's funny. I came in in the last gasps of the Bob Harris era. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and, and when I say last gasp, I mean, people were gasping, gasping for air. <laughs> um, yes. Cause it was a, it was a different, um, editorial vibe, I guess you could say, because this was right before, you know, they, they had these sort of, and you, you know them when they're happening, but you also see them in retrospect, the quote unquote writer's era in comics had not happened yet. Right. Right. So especially on these top books and especially being a newcomer, you, you, you get rewritten a lot. You, you have to kind of swallow a lot of shit and you take it cause you're in and you want to do the job. You want to keep the job. Right. But after a couple of years at Marvel, I kind of had had enough. I, it's, a lot of things had gone down with the books I was doing and, mm-hmm. and the, the people I was working with. And I, at that point I'd gotten a toehold at image and at DC and it, you know, yeah. and at Wildstorm right before they sold to DC. Mm-hmm. So I actually left Marvel. Uh, and I thought it's funny, you know, again, with the perspective of time, I thought Bob Harris was going to be editor in chief forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. thought I thought Mike Carlin was going to be head editor at DC forever because that's what it was when I came in. Yeah. So I was like, well, if I don't really like the editorial environment at Marvel, I got to go because it's not going to change. Well, right. cut to one year later, Bob Harris is out. Joe Quesada is in. Bill Jemis is in. It's a whole new ball game. And then I was back. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is interesting. This is a, a weird situation to be in, you know, but um, yeah. You know, I was happy to be happy to have the option again to work there. Yeah. It seems like uh, change happens very like it, nothing is changing for a long time, and then suddenly everything changes. It's it's not, it's not gradual changes. There's these moments in time where yeah. suddenly the whole staff trades out. Yeah, yeah. No, Axel was going to be there forever until he wasn't. Dan was going to be there forever until he wasn't, and yeah. so on and so forth. But um, well, these guys were there, and yeah. it felt like forever, though. I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you already brought up, you know, uh, Bill and uh, and Casada coming back to Marvel, you, you ended up doing uh, a run on Uncanny X Men. Yes, I did. Yeah, and um, it, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I reread some of that uh, uh, mm-hmm. prior to this because um, yeah. I, I feel like you know because you you launched in tandem with uh grant's new x-men i did yeah yeah and you know obviously you can tell from the costumes and all that but you 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 had this run and i feel like a lot of people kind of memory hole certain aspects or like blend it into like chuck austin's run which was immediately after yours (laughs) <laughs> you know, because I, I to this day I, I still hear people go like, "Oh, Stacy X wasn't that like Chuck Austin created?" Like, no, 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 that was that was Joe Casey. Yeah, and um, you, you know, so uh, so right I off created, that, I created yeah. her. I didn't defile her though. I just created. Her. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. No, it, it, yeah. it, it, I went back and read some of these issues. There's a distinct shift uh, after. <laughs> I mean, if you read it, you 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 obviously can tell um, that there's been a changeover, but. I know Joe's right. I mean, you had a good run on that comic. I I think you had a you were doing solid world building stuff while the attention was kind of all on Grant. Here's the thing, and I'll I'll be just straight up about this. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was I, I mean I loved the X Men as anybody did because it was a good comic. I mean, yeah. I, I was yeah. a big John Byrne fan. 
And then Dave Cochran replaced Byrne or re, or came back after yeah. Byrne. And I checked out. Not Nothing is Dave Cochran because in retrospect, he's fantastic. But as a mm-hmm. kid, I was like, it's not John Byrne. I'm out. Yeah. And Paul Smith comes back, comes in. Now I'm back in. Paul Smith, mm-hmm. right on. I love Paul Smith. Uh, then Paul Smith leaves and John Armita Jr. comes on. Love John Armita Jr. Still kind of checked out. Yeah. So I was a very fair weather X-Men reader. Mm-hmm. I was I was more classic Marvel Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, those guys. Yes. So I get in, you know, when I started out, the X office is the hottest office in comics, and I was happy to be there. And I kind of had my run with the X-Men early on. I scripted some issues. Mm-hmm. I did a miniseries called Children of the Atom. Yep. Yeah. And what really got me back in Marvel, I talked to Bill Jemis when he took, you know, took the job. And he had told me, which he was probably just blowing smoke up my ass like he probably did everybody. But he said, you know, if if, if it had been a year or two later, Children of the Atom would have been Ultimate X-Men. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it really what it was. It was this kind of look going back to the beginning and trying to tell a story with those characters, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, yeah. origin story kind of stuff. So anyway, when it, it was we were talking about, well, what can I come back and do? I knew Grant. They were talking to other writers at the time, yeah, um, including Joss Whedon. Actually, he yeah. was the, he got close, I think. And um, so they lined up everybody except the writer on the other X book. And I, you know, the thing is, I, I'm not on social media at all. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I'm none of that shit. Good for you. Yes, thank you. But the thing is. <laughs> Back in the 90s and the early aughts, Wizard was our social media. Wizard Magazine was our social media. I was all over that shit. So I had this level of sort of new um, recognition or or, um, visibility that fed into what Marvel wanted to do, which was these high-profile relaunches, these bringing these guys. So I feel like in retrospect, I got that gig because nobody else really wanted it. Nobody else really wanted to huh. write the book opposite Grant. Yeah. And for me, I was like, look, if I'm writing Uncanny X-Men and Grant's writing new X-Men, I get to see Grant's scripts before anybody else. That's a win for me right there. Cause I was <laughs> yeah. fan of so that was half the reason I took the gig. But the, <laughs> That's but awesome. the thing is not being a dyed in the wool X-Men fan. What Grant did, if you look back was really ingenious I decided oh, I'm going to do some new shit. Let's try some new shit. And it wasn't all that new, but I tried to make it feel new. And at the time, that is not what fans wanted. Fans wanted the greatest hits and they wanted it written by Grant. And they wanted it drawn by Frank quietly. And I don't blame him one fucking bit. Sure. sure. So I was definitely the redheaded stepchild. At the same time, it's kind of easy to swallow when you're the number two book in the industry. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, so yeah, but again, in the compressed time span that it felt like at the time, after a year and a half, I kind of had enough, and I was kind of ready to go. And I didn't really have any stories to tell that I was excited about telling with those characters. And anything that I did have an interest in doing, I just took to other projects and took to other books. Yeah. So. Um, I feel like I got out at the right time. Um, and I'm sure, you know, and I was, again, I, I'm sure 
Marvel was sick of me at that point anyway, because I was gone again for like a couple of years before I came back to do more work for him. Now, now um, to to follow up with that, how you were, um, you know, working on stories for, for the book for like the year and a half, what, what kind of restrictions were placed on you? Because obviously, you know, Grant's using, you know, a bunch of the A-listers, like, were they basically like, here's who you got to use, or was it more like, here's who you can't use? and you know figure out a team or, or what kind of directives did you get if i recall i feel like well, obviously grant's uh cast was sort of in place grant's very amenable about these kind of things uh we shared wolverine to to a certain extent because i was like I, you can't do an x book without wolverine sure. yeah. Yeah. um and uh, claremont was doing this book extreme x-men at the time and he had a group of characters that I had no interest in whatsoever. And I think that was by design. He wanted to forge this new path and, you know, yeah, right. which I respect, you know, but as it turns out, the, the, the ones who were sort of left over were the, exactly the ones that I was interested in all the, I called them the freaks, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the night crawlers, the angels, when he had blue skin and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I brought in chamber from generation X cause he was freaky looking. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then I brought in Stacey X. And so I wanted a real visual team that where you looked at them and, they, you know, you look at if Cyclops puts on the shades and walks around with Jean Grey in New York City, no one looks twice except if they dig on his red shades. You know, he yeah. can pass. I wanted the characters that couldn't pass no matter how hard they tried. Yeah. And I felt like that was a way to mark the territory that I was trying to eke out. I'm not yeah. sure how successful I was, but at least I got, I mean, I got the characters I, I, I wanted to get. The only character that I didn't get, which the one thing I remember wanting to do that I didn't get to do because I left was to bring, to make uh, Quicksilver an X-Men. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. I thought oh, cool. the, the son of Magneto has got it. has never been on the X-Men. He should be on the X-Men. So that's, that's, that's my one thing that I didn't get to do. That would have been a cool thing to play with, with where Grant was going with Magneto. That would have been nice to have that in the mix. Uh, yeah. That's too bad. You know, but, but you, you thought ahead in, in a few ways. I mean, you even had uh, a mutant give birth to a baby called Hope years before uh, that happened in uh, Messiah Complex. Uh, yes. How about that? I'll uh, to get back to your question, Joe, the, uh, we had no restrictions, by the way. Sure. Because yeah. the new Marvel, as we called it, was trying to was trying to lean into this writer friendly atmosphere that was just kind of starting to bubble up. So we had we did an X Men conference, I guess you could say, you know, story conference, where we just kind of sat around and shot the shit. And in the hotel bar later, me and Grant and and Frank Quietly and Ian Churchill, we then we kind of spitballed, and that's where the whole Stacy X mutant prostitute idea. Cause I was just like, how about that? How about that? Why don't we do that? And it was like, almost like a dare. Mm -hmm. I love it. We felt like if they're going to let us do shit, then let's do some shit, you yeah. know? So that's I where I, that's I, where I like the, the, I like the organic way that would go. I mean, that's, that's more healthy. You're just sitting around a bar. You're, you're talking over ideas and you could get some good stuff that way. Yeah. It doesn't happen like that anymore. I promise no, you. no, definitely, definitely not. <laughs> But I so I but I think your run on on X Men I it's funny because as time goes by people's opinions shift and things I, I agree with Joe I think a lot of stuffs got kind of blended together but it's interesting you mentioned kind of the greatest hits uh, aspect to what Morrison was doing because 
it has um, a lot of people remember kind of that era fondly, but when they dig into the details, they do come up with the, it was kind of just the greatest hits. And that's not to take anything away from the work. It, it was it was creative and, and big and everything else. But it's it's just interesting how perceptions kind of shift at times, uh, because like Stacy X is a character kind of went through a whole whole world of of uh, this is this is the worst character ever. But then that was more about the ending than the beginning. I think. Yeah, yeah, I would I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the idea was original and, and fun. I, I I think it was a it was a good idea. It just it, it it went it went in strange directions. I guess is the best way to put it. Well, it went in the opposite direction of where it was supposed to go. I can tell you that right now. Where well well now I got to ask where was it supposed to go? Well, it was supposed to be. I mean, it was all in the name. Stacy X is a Malcolm X kind of thing that I was trying to set up from the lowly beginnings the to mm-hmm. something, you know, really uh, special, hopefully, you know, that she would actually uh, transcend her, all of the, all the um, obvious prejudices against her yeah, and really come into her own as a character. I mean, that was the vibe at the beginning. If I'd have yeah. just, if I'd have thought, well, if it had just been that bar joke, it wouldn't have been worth doing. But once you got past the, the, the chutzpah of the, the idea then you thought, where can you take this that makes it worth doing? That gives it some power and some significance. So that was that was where it was going to go. I mean, I can't help what happened after I left. I, of course, I, of course. I mean, but that's yeah. what, that's what it should be. You 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 set these characters up. You want to put them on an arc to be bigger than how they started. You want to, yeah. You know that that that's the journey. So, uh, yeah. but I also feel like. The, now that we've gotten some distance from it, kind of to follow up on what, what Perch was saying, that I think the quality of what you were doing and, and sort of the things that Grant was doing, it is coming off more with that distance that, you know, it was complementary to each other. And, and, you know, the quality wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Grant's doing this incredible thing that no one else can touch, which was a little more at the time. And now that we have that distance, I think we could appreciate you know, both works in a similar sort of fashion to, you know, I feel like with uh, Wheezy on X Factor and, you know, Claremont on on Uncanny that like now with that distance, I think over time more people came around to the idea like Wheezy was really doing stuff like on that same level in a way that I I don't think was appreciated at the time. So I I think also the perspective of time, you know, I think the nostalgia for anything um, is when you when it all comes out after the fact how much freedom we had and how much it wasn't programmed editorially. I mean, we were really doing pretty much whatever we wanted to do. And I think for guys doing the, the X-Books now or any big franchise at, at, at the Marvel or DC, that's probably inconceivable yeah. how much freedom that we had and how much we were allowed. I mean, I said it then and I said it now. They gave me all the rope I needed to fucking hang myself with. <laughs> <laughs> I was dangling like a motherfucker, I'll tell you that. I I, I mean, yeah, what you're describing, I think a lot of current creators have no concept of. They they just we now have a generation that's never worked in anything but kind of a more controlled environment we have. You know, you mentioned uh, kind of the, the redemption arc or the, not, not redemption, that's the wrong way to put it, but just the growth arc of Stacey X. Uh, you also... I'm curious because I was reading an interview where they were talking about your time on Iron Man. And one of the, the kind of repeated comments that comes up a lot lately is that, you know, a lot of these characters, Captain America, Iron Man, Superman, 
that uh, people will say they're impossible to write. They're just they're they're so hard. They're just these are old fashioned characters. There's just no way to write these characters. And I saw this interview where you you had a very different take on that. Uh, was that where I said that uh, Tony Stark is smarter than just about any writer who's ever written him, or did I say something even more profound than that? I, I think that's I think that was your quote, but I but that's exactly so. How how you you never seem to struggle with these characters that other people seem to really struggle with. Well, I, I mean, I struggle sometimes. I just try not to let it show. I mean, you don't need that struggle on the page. You can have yeah. it behind the scenes. Um, I I mean. Iron Man, I did a couple of miniseries with Iron Man that I really liked, and I love that character. Yeah. And it was right before the movie, so I didn't feel the pressure to write uh, Robert Downey Jr. I was just writing Iron Man. Yeah. Um, so, you again, There's a, there was a freedom there to kind of let Tony Stark be who you thought he was. Yeah. Um, so the way you get around somebody who's, you know, a super genius when you're not a super genius is to portray them as someone who doesn't uh, wave their super genius around. Mm-hmm. You know, you, they, they, uh, again, they can pass as normal people, but it, it comes with the dinner that they're super smart and, and you don't have to, you don't have to um, write it like your IQ is, you know, 200. Um, hopefully, Hopefully you, you have enough ideas in the story that kind of justify the fact that you're writing it and that you, yeah. you've got a handle on the character. But, you know, you don't have to be a Mensa member to write Iron Man, I don't think. <laughs> no, no. But, I mean, you, 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 you wrote Hank Pym. You wrote a lot of the Avengers characters. So you mentioned Superman. You, you had your hands on a lot of very classic characters. And the characters, uh, not, to, not to blow smoke up your ass or anything, but they were always, you did a very good job of, playing into what felt like the core of the character. It didn't, it didn't feel like, I, I don't know. It, it came across as a reader, uh, fairly effortless. Um, I, I'm sure there was, as you mentioned, struggle behind the scenes, but as a reader, it read true to the character and you, you wrote some pretty powerful moments. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I feel like if you, if you like the character and have some, some history with the character as a reader, um, you can, as long as you write them so they feel true to you as as the audience, you know. I mean, if if I when I was writing Superman, it took me sometimes I had a better handle on them than others. Mm-hmm. I think the Marvel characters, um, when I would write the ones that I grew up with, like the Avengers or whatnot, or those that that section of the Marvel universe, I just felt like I knew them so well that it was like, you know, not I wouldn't say like writing old friends, but. Mm-hmm. You're writing something that you you feel the resonant chord being struck if you're getting it right. Yeah, you know, you've got that experience with the characters that if it doesn't feel right, you know it. Yeah, um, and sometimes you know, I, certainly I've sometimes pushed ahead with that because I thought that it was good for the story or maybe good for the character. But more often than not, if I didn't feel that, you know, that bell being rung inside me. Then I, you know, that's when I knew I was going down the, the wrong alley. Yeah. And uh, s- since you mentioned uh, Superman, uh, you know, he's usually considered by so many people to be like you know, impossible to write or the most impossible to write. Uh, he's just too old. He's not relatable in any way. There's just nothing you can do with them. But you, you wrote him for a few years in Adventures of, of Superman. So 
where did you like what was the core of the character to you that defined him that made it uh so you could pull pull stories from and and write as many issues as you did well i i did it for about three years and i came into it knowing you know again knowing superman as a fan knowing him from you know the movies from the from the burn relaunch that was sort of my main um grounding in that character when i came into it at first i came into it more from a I guess a craft point of view, I wanted to write a certain type of structure, which if mm-hmm. you, you know, if you look at my first year of Superman and I talked to, you know, Michael Ringo about this, God rest his soul. And he, you know, he was the artist. I was lifting from other comics. I was basically doing Frank Miller, Sin City storytelling mm. using Superman, which was mm. just like big images you know, narr- narrative captioning off to the side. It was very um, formalist because that's what I was interested in at the time. I was interested in exploring that formalist structure with Superman. Then as I got more familiar and comfortable with the character, I decided, you know, then that's, that's when I started to dive into who Superman is to me, what he represents, what's the best kind of story to tell. I, I got, I dropped the formalist stuff and just started writing stories. And, Finally, in my last year, I felt like I'd cracked not the code, but at least my code, which is sort of this amalgamation of the the Fleischer cartoons mixed with the Weisinger years, mixed with my own feelings about how Superman should be portrayed, uh, what kind of adventures he should have. And it all kind of and we had a steady art team at the time and it all kind of clicked. So. I'm I'm really happy with how that last year came out because it presented a Superman that, you know, I was in my early 30s writing that stuff. So I, I but I could get behind that Superman. You know, I, I, I cared about that Superman and I hadn't really cared about that character so much before that. Yeah. So for me, that was a that was enough to justify whatever I did, you know. Do you think how much um, it's kind of a kind of a two part question, but I mean, the first piece do, do the, does a, to be a writer to do it really well, there's certain there has to be some level of empathy, some level of connection with the character you're writing. Like how how much do you let yourself get kind of caught up and tied into the world you're, you're writing? Um, I mean, you don't let it take over your life or anything, but I mean, it's something you got to think about. I mean, with Superman in particular to what you, what you were saying about how, you know, he's, he's tough to write cause he's, you know, he's been around forever. He's had every kind of story or he's, you know, the most powerful hero or whatever. Uh, so then you got to find out, well, what, um, what hurts Superman, you know, and it's usually not something physical, right? It's always emotional or mental or whatever. So that right there puts you on a, on a path with the kind of stories you're going to write. So when I got into my last year on the book, I had this, I did this sort of internal mandate where I was like, okay, Superman's not going to throw a punch for a year. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be, he's not going to yeah. throw down like a pro wrestler with whoever the adversary is or the antagonist. And I kept to that. And um, I think I, yeah, I went even further than that and had him say that he was a pacifist, Yeah, which to me, Superman would be a pacifist. Yeah. Why wouldn't if you're not worried about getting hurt? Why why would you be 
at all aggressive in your action and, and how you present yourself and how you deal with the world. So you can imagine I caught some shit for that one. <laughs> sure. I, I'm curious. So by the same token, we, we've heard things and I, I know you've had some thoughts on this in the past, but uh, creators, uh, is this an industry that, that does well by creators, especially ones that, on one hand, they, you need to be very passionate about what you're doing. But on the other hand, does the industry, like, how does the industry take care of creators that do connect their passion into these projects? Does it, is it good for them? No, <laughs> <laughs> those guys get screwed. You know, I mean, yeah. that's the, that's the, the bait and switch of, of work for hire comics, especially if you grew up loving these characters is that, you know, and I do it to this day. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I still write work for hire stuff for the, for the big publishers on occasion. And I do it out of love. Right. And when you love something, you're very vulnerable. Yeah. You know, uh, and you're vulnerable to all kinds of abuse and hurts and, you know, whatever they want to throw at you because you, you really have to figure out, you know, what you're going to take in trade for, for the privilege of writing these characters that you may have loved since you were five years old, you know? Is part of the health there that you you're aware that you're making a trade? I mean, it seems to me that's where creators maybe sometimes get get things backwards for themselves. Is their uh, the love is what they care about, and they expect that if I love something, I'm going to be taken care of, and they don't quite realize they're making a trade. And that's yeah, where you, things seem to you go. You got to be aware. You got to be aware of what you're getting into, and um, and it's interesting because again, as we've seen in the last you know year or so the ground can shift underneath you so quickly, right? You know, your editor gets fired or your, the publisher gets sold or the company gets sold or merged with something else and everything changes. It's not, there's no, you, sometimes you can't even put a human face on it. Right. You're just getting screwed by the universe, you know? But if you go in with some awareness of that possibility, you know, it's, it's, it's a delicate balancing act because you don't want to be cynical. But you don't want to be naive either. Do you think the the sheer amount of money in this entire business, because it is this odd piece where you hear about extremely low rates and people being taken advantage of uh, right at the same time you're hearing about a movie making $2 billion. Like, it, it, it isn't that tough for people to kind of wrap their heads around? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a leading question. Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean... I I don't know because I've experienced it on several different levels. Sometimes it rolls off my back, and sometimes it it's really painful. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been you know a couple of decades now for me, so it's hard to parse out the ones that I can easily talk about. The ones that I, the ones that are still maybe a sore spot. I mean, it's but that's part of it. I mean, I came into this business wanting to be in this business and I knew enough coming in that these things are going to happen, whether you like it or not, whether you prepare for them or not, they're going to happen. I've had, I mean, look, Stacey X, let's go back to Stacey X. I yeah. thought she was ruined, but she's come back a couple times and she, I, I think she's coming back again. I'm sure there's room on that Island for her somewhere. Sure. Of course, yeah. If you can, if they're if they're all that death has no meaning, then why not, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I don't know. I mean, when the first time she got put out to pasture, I thought, oh, all right, well, that's it. You know, I'm one, you know, you're one of several 
creators who created something that went nowhere, had no other life other than what was on the pages. And I was actually very cool with that, you know, but ask me again, if she comes back and in a big way and is in the next X-Men movie, then I might have a different story. <laughs> That's you know true. what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, suddenly they're they're making kids' toys and T-shirts out of it. It, it kind of has a different take all of a sudden. Yeah, um, yeah. And having gone through the Ben Ten thing, mm-hmm. knowing how much money is out there when these things break out of their original zone, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'm I'm really curious. Uh, how to, let's see the right way to ask this question. I mean, having gone through the Ben Ten situation and and some of these shows that have taken off. Um, are, do comics kind of sell themselves short? And I guess what I mean by that is, I mean, obviously there are, there are billion dollar movies being made by Disney and, and you know, Warner Media and everything else. But it, it seems like comics outside those movies really struggles to kind of get some of those properties and some of those things over. And then you do see a show like Ben 10 and you see kind of the easy connection to kids and the merchandise and just every everything that comes of that it feels like comics hasn't quite cracked the code that maybe you were able to in the animation studio. Well, I mean, I feel like, I mean, let's just, let's just limit it to mainstream comics, mainstream superhero comics. Sure. Um, I really don't think there's the kind of audience that there used to be for these characters. Um, I mean, this is so obvious. I mean, it's it's so it's obvious and to the point of being stupid. But <laughs> kids don't read comics anymore, really. Certainly not these characters to any great extent. Yep. So that emotional attachment is not happening. So that's not going to carry into their adulthood on any level, really. And so the feedback loop that we're in the middle of now with all the Marvel movies. I mean, all the Marvel stuff in film is taken from primarily the seventies and the eighties. Yep. Yep. Which is exactly when a guy like Kevin Feige was a kid reading comics. Yes. You know, it's not even, it's not even going back to the Stan and Jack stuff. The 60s stuff is kind of over in terms of the, the, the movies. Yep. Um, and it all has to do with when you get hooked into this stuff as a kid, you, and it, and it is about being a kid. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's when the stuff really takes root. So without that audience, this thing is going to end at some point, I feel like, you know, I mean, yeah. not end in like it's going to go away, but it will, it will run itself out. And I'm just talking about the comics. Now the movies are going, they'll perpetuate themselves in the way that all franchises do all IP and in, in, in movies do. But in the comics, it's going to be, we're entering into a very weird time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think uh, a lot of these characters like Batman, Superman, Spider-Man are that far away of being as relevant as Zorro, the Green Hornet, and, and characters like that if they don't play their cards right. Yeah, I agree. But it's And it's also, you know, because there are no kids reading comics, they're not they're being now written and, and created in a certain way. Right. Mm-hmm. And the thing, you know, I think, you know, there's a big back issue market right now. And I think people are going back to that old material because there's a lack of pretension in that material. Yeah. Yep. That 
those guys, I mean, those are those guys are my heroes because they knew who their audience was. They knew that they were writing for, you know, young kids, young teenagers, maybe. And even though as a fan, I benefited from the, the quote unquote maturity of comics in the 80s and the 90s or whatever. They, you know, they kept me involved and I'm, I'm grateful that they did. Looking back, I know something gets lost in that maturity, which yeah. is the regeneration of new people reading. I mean, the la I feel like the last generation of kids that read comics was probably the first wave of image comics. Yeah. The, I think that that plays out in what you see from people, the comments they make and some of the sales. I, what you're saying is I, I, I I've thought about a lot and it, it's something you mentioned earlier when you're talking about kind of your journey with X-Men of you got hooked during the burn era, but you, you made it, you made a tether to that property. You, you connected to it. And so they changed things and you kind of drifted away, but it was very easy for you to open up the door again. Paul Smith comes on board, very easy to kind of step back into that world. But that was done because you, you, you established that connection and you're a kid reading a comic and today that initial connection isn't being built. Well, why would you when the, that audience isn't even there? You know? Sure. I sure. mean, why bother? But, and again, I say this with the perspective of being guilty of it myself. When I wrote from the beginning, starting out, uh, I felt like maybe the audience I was writing to for Cable and my, my early stuff at Marvel at best was a, a, an audience of late teens, early 20s, you know, not much younger than me writing them. So I felt like, well, let me just write something that I would enjoy and they'll catch up. You know, they'll, they'll yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't, didn't want to write down anybody, but I knew I wasn't writing for kids. So I didn't feel the, the pressure of having to dumb down anything I was trying to do. But so, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't regret what how i did it because we were all doing it that way right right that was, that's yeah. that's who was out there reading it but something gets lost um when you you know when that audience is gone i feel like you know yeah and sure. and you see a lot too of uh you know like writers uh currently um you know saying stuff like oh i'm writing for you know kid me or something like that i'm, I'm writing something that i would have enjoyed you know, when I was I was a kid or I was a teenager, and, and I feel like there, there's a huge disconnect there, and uh, a, it's a bit of a mistake because uh, a you know a teenager in 2003 is a way different audience than a teenager now. Yeah, and and you see that all the time, and you pick up these comics and you read them, and you're like, there's it's off. There's there's something like. I don't, and then you see what people are saying, what they're trying to do, and you're like, "Oh, that makes sense," because they're literally making this for an audience that does not exist and can never exist. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a big deal, you know. And I, again, you think back to my sort of role models as writers, and and it's because the the era is, as they say, bygone in a big way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when I was 10 years old and reading Iron Man and the Avengers, I didn't feel like David Michelinie was writing down to me at all. Right. Yeah. But he was writing for me. 
He was writing for the 10 year old me. He knew who his audience was. And yet he wasn't spoon feeding much. I mean, he, you know, everybody in the, you know, in the eighties was had, had to deal with that Jim shooter style of storytelling at Marvel, but sure. that's not always a bad thing. And some good shit came out of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Grinwald seemed to be able to make it work and Stern and others. Oh, I mean, yeah. You, and you go down the list, Walt Simonson on Thor, Frank Miller on uh, Dar uh, Daredevil. Sure. Uh, they're, you know, great stuff that was, that had the kind of sophistication of artistry that a kid does respond to mm -hmm. without feeling left out of anything. You know, they don't feel like, I mean, it's one thing um, if you, you know, if you're a kid and you're reading something that is clearly made for an adult, you might get that sort of joyful glee of reading something you're not supposed to, but sure. superhero comic books are metaphorical constructs for kids to deal with things. Right. It's what they've always been at their best. And you can layer in things that make it interesting for you as a creator and as a writer, as an artist, whatever. But when that audience is gone and you don't have to deal with those metaphors anymore, something does get lost. I feel like, you know, something that's very universal and something that is timeless. And that's just, I feel like that's pretty much gone uh, from, you know, modern mainstream comics. Yeah, it doesn't need to be there. No, no. It, no. It, it, it feels like uh, if, I mean, this is one of the things where manga is enjoying a lot of success right now, because it does feel like it's be able to tap into some of that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So much so that even, you know, American kids are like digging on it. You know? Yeah, I, that's the baffling, mean, I mean, not baffling part of it, but that's the part that I think people have to really wrap their head around is somehow a product written for a completely different culture and market is finding great success here in terms of how it's able to capture that kind of synergy with kids. Yeah. Well, I also think that I think that part of that, too, is that, you know, in Japan, there's no shame in comics. <laughs> There's That's never nobody true. is ever ashamed to be reading a manga or, you know, it's it, they'll read it on the train or whatever. Adults, kids, teenagers, anybody. And in America, the puritanical culture that we still live in, there's you know everybody's got to still deal with whatever shame they've got left over from childhood. I mean, I think we're we're entering into generations that have less of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I still was of a generation where. It's, I mean, it's so ridiculous to say out loud, but you just <laughs> you didn't broadcast your love of comic books. It's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny. It almost feels like the we, we bypass the, uh, the kind of shame of reading comics from one generation to now almost there's a new weird shame of like, why are you reading old fashioned paper? Like, why, are, why aren't you on something? <laughs> different? It's almost like, really? Well, yeah, no, it's seriously. I, I mean, there's a dad, two kids who love comics. They that's kind of the new thing of like why aren't you uh playing minecraft why aren't you on doing something digital it's like the shame is flipped just to a new, yeah. <laughs> a new angle it's weird which, which is right. funny because now we get like uh like i say like writers who are in their 30s and 40s who are, are trying to like relate to the current generation by telling stories that are basically for you know hot topic kids that can quote the postal service lyrics <laughs> <laughs> And you're just like, what? What in the hell are you thinking? Like, yeah, I, I'd, I'd rather not read that if that's all right with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that's uh, very few do. Pop, popular choice. Yeah. 
I got to say, I, you know, seeing some of the, the other videos you guys have done, I, what I feel is interesting about the era that we're in now is that everything is part of what I call the churn. Mm-hmm. So everything is there to be disseminated and discussed and talked about. It's all fodder. Yes. For this, you know, with social media and all, and all the things that come with it, it's, it's, we've done this strange, well, I haven't, but a lot of people have. They've done this strange thing where for the first time we've monetized discourse. And I don't mean, I don't necessarily yep. just mean money. I just mean, and, and that could mean in terms of likes or hits or what subscribers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get a kick out of sometimes you guys talk about things that are interesting to hear you talk about. I have no interest in what it is. But <laughs> the discussion is interesting. You sure. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's the whole, that's the culture we're in now. And it's, I don't even call it outrage culture, but even though that's a, a component of it. Sure. It's just everything exists to be talked about. It's, it's absolutely true. Like and subscribe, everyone, by the way. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It, it is. I, it, it's funny. It's like uh, deconstruction is a, is a term that's, that's going on in comics, but it's also it's that you can use that same term to apply how we're all talking, consuming this stuff. We're deconstructing everything. And, and some of the more popular books that have come out over the last year that have actually sold the most um, kind of either standalone things, the, the stuff that's uh, high up on Amazon's list, is almost the stuff that's talked about less. Like I, I interviewed uh, Tom who did the, did primer and yeah. there's very little discussion of primer, but it's selling great. And yeah. Yeah. it's just a story that stands on its own. Well, there's, yeah. I mean, something that's quality that hits its audience in, 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 in the way it's intended to, what is there to be outraged about? You exactly. know, yeah. what is there to talk about except good for him, good for that book. And I'm glad that it, there's a, there's a, a, a piece of uh, art out there that is connecting to that audience, you know, because there's very few of them. There's very few, although very few of them in the mainstream that, that, that we know and love, you know? Yeah. How, how uh, to, to, you know, we talked about kind of the big two and everything. Um, was it different at image? I mean, obviously image was a different company, but when all was said and done, you did the work for image, you did for work for Wildstorm. Was it, was it significantly different? Were they, was it a different experience for you? Well, they're kind of similar. Wildstorm, I had a lot of freedom at Wildstorm. We all did when we worked there. We, I kind of, it's, again, it's been an, enough years that we can all look back and say that even though they were sold to DC and everybody thought, oh my God, this, this is horrible. Some really good shit came out of that first five years sure. at Wildstorm. I'm really good shit. I mean, like genre defining stuff. Oh, for sure. Um, so that, which, you know, which you can, again, attribute to the fact that we had a lot of freedom there. I mean, I was in charge of Jim Lee's flagship book for yeah. three or four years and did whatever the fuck I wanted to do, basically. Absolutely. You know, so, I mean, that's that's pretty rare. And then that experience really rolled into my Image Comics stuff, which was basically... At that point, I'd been in the business for almost a decade, and I was ready to, you know, for lack of a better term, be my own boss. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because when I do Image Comics or you know books for Image, uh, I am the the editor, the project manager, the writer. uh, You know, I put together the the team, you know, the whole bit, top to bottom, and 
it's the it's really the fulfillment of what I always wanted to do in comics, which is, you know, when I was a kid, I used to do this thing uh, when I would, you know, write and draw my own horrible comics. But I would actually, like, let's say an issue of Avengers came out. My whole trick would be I would try to write and draw the next issue before the real next issue came out, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my own version of it. And I never got past, you know, page six or whatever, because I was terrible. <laughs> but when I did it, you, you do the cover first, and I would draw everything. The, that Marvel Comics group masthead, the yep. Comics Code seal, the price, everything, because I wanted it to be legit, you know? Yep. I, I had so, the same experience. That's funny. Yeah. So Image Comics is just doing that for real. You're doing yep. all that stuff. You're positioning everything, you know, from I work with uh, graphic design and, you know, from that to top to bottom, it's a complete expression of what I want a comic book, whatever it is I'm doing to look like. Mm -hmm. So it's great. I mean, it's, and it's not for everybody, but I, I, what's very uh, heartening again, forget about the, who's reading them, the creation of these things. And that goes to, you know, the stuff that you see on Kickstarter and, you know, people doing their own stuff that total control of the package is really cool to see because you're really getting whether, whether even whether the creators know it or not, you're really getting an, uh, an unfiltered look into their artistic psyche just in their presentation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where they put the logo on the cover. Oh yeah. Says something about them as a, as a creator, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking about that, speaking about, you know, uh, seeing the, the artist psyche, you, you also did this book, the, the milkman murders. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I, I remember that coming out more at the time over at dark horse. What, what was it like working at dark horse and, and on that book in particular? That was, um, it was kind of, it was basically an image comic because it was, Ooh. because it was creator owned. It was so little money that they just, let us do whatever we wanted to do. I was psyched because it was working with Steve Parkhouse. I was a huge fan of from the, the Bo Jeffrey saga and the stuff he'd done uh, over, over in England. Um, and he was great to work with. And again, it was one of those things where the money was so, so little that you just let, let yourself off the leash to be as depraved and as creepy as you could possibly be because it, the work was the only thing that mattered. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't paying the rent or anything. Yeah, that's fair. How uh, so? With um, d doing your Im your image books and you're having more freedom and more control. Do you feel like as a creator, then you're, I mean, you're what's the best way to put it? You're you're not taken advantage of as much. Do you, do you is there a feeling of of that you're you're getting a better shake as a creator? Of course. I mean, I when you own the IP, that's all you really ever want. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. and um, I mean, you know, I've been and I've been to the gamut with my image comics work. I've had stuff that sold well. I've had stuff that sold for shit. I've made money. I've made zero money. I've been in the red. I've been in the black. I've been through the whole thing about, you know, with Officer Down, where mm -hmm. you make the comic, then somebody wants to make the movie. You write the movie, you produce the movie, the movie's out. You know, yeah. I've been through that whole journey with creator owned uh, material. And I just can't imagine sp having spent the last, I don't know, 15 years now mm -hmm. 
doing exclusively work for hire comics and having in a way nothing to show for it. Right. You know? Right. Um, that would be sad to me. Yeah. Is it the, is it the idea? So there's, I know there's a lot of creators who talk about, you know, one day I'll just get that book at image and I'll do my book and then it will be optioned and then I'll get a, a movie and then I will be famous. It's, it, it's not that simple though, is it? It's just, you're moving <laughs> into another platform. No, Officer Down did nothing for me in terms of my career. It was just an experience that was, mm -hmm. it was a fantastic creative experience from the comic to the movie to, I mean, it was great because it was, we did it independently. We got private equity. And so it wasn't like a studio giving us notes. And it was just, it was like making a movie like you make an image comic, it's kind of off, off on your own. Yeah. And then you put it out and, you know, it does what it does. It's on Netflix now. Great. Okay, fine. Um, so, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't, uh, nothing really changes your life after a certain amount of time doing a job, you know, oh, yeah. there's no project that I'll ever do. That's going to make or break my career. Now I felt that way in the beginning, you know, going from nothing to writing cable was a huge leap, yeah. you know, and then going from, you know, being sort of a mid tier guy to writing uncanny X-Men, mm -hmm. you know, that was a pretty big leap. And, but once you assimilate all those experiences, I mean, like I know what it's like to have, the number one book, you know, I, I had it, you know, it, I know what that's like. And if you are, if you're hungry to create and keep uh, having more experiences, then you're like a shark. You just keep moving forward. You're swimming and swimming and swimming, trying to stay in motion. And what's the next thing? What's the next experience that I'm going to have? Cause that's ultimately, that's what it's about. I mean, again, there might have been some ego boost to having my, you know, teen beat spread in Wizard Magazine, which I had. <laughs> sure. But once you have it, it's done. And we don't, we don't live in that world anymore. There's no centralized comic book press where you can, yeah. you know, really be celebrated and, and, and lifted up and then torn down again, you know, which happens all the time, you know, or used yeah. to anyway. So the ego boost in comics is even not what it was. I find, right. you know? well, I mean, especially the last year and a half without cons. I mean, I think one of the challenges with the conventions and why there's so many creators who do get into trouble is that they get to at, at the con is that they, uh, they get there and it's a, it's an ego trip. Suddenly they are a massive celebrity and that's not the normal day to day of their life. And it seems like some personalities just don't really know how to handle that. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's just human nature, though. And, sure, and again, sure. it, it comes with, you know, experience is the best teacher. And I certainly had my share of fuck ups when I was a younger creator. And you, you just you deal with them and you move on. You know, I mean, I, luckily, I haven't been canceled yet. So I got that going for me. You know? Well, being off social media is a great start to prevent. There you go. Oh, yeah, no, but, uh, you, you know, it's interesting, too, I, I said, you know, like, Cable, you know, is a big leap in your career. You got to write 20 issues of Cable. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, yeah. Uh, I, like, the way things have changed now, it's impossible to imagine someone getting 20 straight issues on a book sort of that early in their career. Like, the, the industry's really changed a lot to a 
you know, sort of milking things with like, okay, maybe you got a one shot here, you're an anthology here, another one shot here, maybe a mini series, then maybe we'll give you a potential ongoing that you'll get renewed every five issues or something like that. Like it's really changed a lot. Um, did you see some of those changes as you, your career was progressing? Well, yeah. I mean, when I first broke in at Marvel, especially, I thought I would never have a number one issue of a Marvel comic, but I would never write a number one issue of any Marvel comic. Cause I came on a cable. I think it was issue 51. I took over the Hulk with like issue 160 or no, not once at 467 or something like that. You know, these long, you know, fairly long, you know, uncanny X-Men. I took over at like 394. And then at some point in there, I did, um, I did a relaunch of Deathlock, mm-hmm. And that was, gonna, yep. and it was the number one issue. I thought, my God, a number one issue of a Marvel monthly series. Holy shit. This is a big fucking deal, man. Yeah. And now it's, just, you know, it just happens every other month, it seems like, you know, I mean, that, that I thought number one, you know, number one issue launching a series was like the most special thing you could do. Um, and then and also when I was on Superman, uh, within my first year, we did this, I guess, this event called Our Worlds at War, which right. crossed over all the books and had some and pulled in things like Wonder Woman and some other titles. There's a kind of a it was a whole summer event. And I remember being told about this and I was like, an, ev- an ev- ev- event? Is that, are we still doing those? What the hell? Cause we hadn't they had <laughs> oh, stopped doing them for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. You know, amazing. And, yeah. uh, so, and I thought they would never come back, you know, <laughs> and at Marvel, they didn't come back for a good five years after that until I, I guess house of M or something, one of those deals. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember when house of M was happening, I thought, Gee, Jesus, are we going to try this again? Holy shit. And now it's just perpetual. It's just, yeah. you know. And then they throw it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you see those things. And again, you know, like I was going telling you about, you know, thinking Bob Harris is going to be there forever. You just never, you're just trying to get used to the, to the environment that you're in and trying to master the, the, the puzzle pieces that you're, you're dealt, the cards that you're dealt, I guess. Yeah. And then suddenly somebody shuffles the cards again. You're like, oh, shit, okay, now it's a new industry we got to deal with, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you're, you're trying to find your footing there. I, that's, that's one of the reasons why I never even got on the social media train because I thought that's just opening myself up to more card shuffling, you know. Sure. And I'd rather just keep my head down and, and create – actual comics than get on there and try to, I mean, I'd been through that brand building, you know, personal brand building thing already. Uh, and it, I, I got out of it what I needed to get out of it. And once I did, I thought, well, good. I don't have to do that shit again. Yeah. It sounds so charming and innocent when you put it that way. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> well, but also remember I was, I was kind of there when the internet really was happening for comic books, you know, the Warren Ellis forum and, and, you know, really um, where a lot of uh, combo creators for what they were got very media savvy, you know, right. right. And, and between the internet and the actual mainstream media, that light started to hit us. And we responded by saying, okay, this was the combo creator as rock star era, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of, again, coincided with new Marvel and the turn of the millennium and all that stuff. And it didn't take long for most of us to realize 
that's just another form of ego bullshit. Yeah. yeah. You know? It uh, did it did sell some books, but not, you know, it ultimately was for not. And I'm very happy to not be in that that era anymore, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, you're really missing out on, on people telling you you're the best and then you having then to tell them that they're the best and then just reaction giving a bunch back and forth. It's it's a ride, a wild <laughs> ride. Yeah, you're so much fun. You're missing out on right now. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it. It sounds yeah, like it, it. It's great. And it, it, all this stuff just makes you money every second you're doing it, too. It's, well, again, uh, yeah. Well, again, again, like I said, it, I get it. It's it's part of the churn. It's part of the culture. And also, I think from a bigger sense, I mean, this is this is even a wider perspective, is that we're in a very tumultuous time all across the board. Sure. sure. Um, and we're a lot of things are unsettled. A lot of things are evolving uh, culturally, politically, socially. Um, and and the, the comics is sort of the microcosm of, of that wider change. Yep. But but the truth is, to, to my eyes, that change doesn't happen smoothly. It's always very confusing and very scary for some people who don't want that change. Uh, it's always very um, discombobulating for everybody. Yeah. People react to it in different ways. Um, and but it but. It's, it's going to happen. The changes that are happening are going to keep happening and things might not settle down, you know, for years and years and years. Uh, and, you know, those of us who remember how it used to be, I put that in air quotes, mm -hmm. sure. have just got to just understand that it's not ever going back to those things. Right. It's, it's yeah. never going to return to what we would consider. Uh, I mean, it's just never going to be like how it was when we, when we were growing up reading comics. It's the industry has changed. The world has changed. Entertainment business has changed. It's all different. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like people who really want to bitch about it are really just venting the frustration that whether they're conscious of it or not, it's not going back to the way it used to be. Yeah, so uh, everyone listening, you heard it here first. Uh, according to Joe Casey, life just is going to suck from here on out. That's it. Yes. Uh, hope you got a few good days in beforehand. Yeah. Well, you know, it might, and that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. you got to live with it. You know? got to deal with it. Is there, you know, you're, you're, you're at this place, I think, where a lot of creators today want to be. I, when you talk to them, they, they say, you know, I'm doing some big two work. I want to have some recognition there, but I really want to do some indie stuff where I'm in control and I get to make my own decisions. I also really want to get into, into Hollywood and into entertainment and do a show or do a cartoon or do that's, that's your, you're where a lot of people say they want to be. Um, first, I mean, is it, is it, is it great? Are you, are you glad? Did you already well, are? I mean, I. It's an interesting question because. <laughs> How um, happy are you, sir? <laughs> I'm. It's not about. This, I don't want to sound like a bummer because it's not about happiness. It's yeah. about. It's about. Like I said before, it's about experience, you know. And I'm very grateful that everything adds up that I've done so far to a career. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know going into this 20 something years ago that I would have a career. 
I, I, I couldn't have predicted. I was just concerned with just staying in the game as, you know, as, as much as I could. So to, to now be this far into it and realize that, yeah, I've, I've done all, I've had all kinds of experiences that relate to this thing that I've loved my whole life. It's gratifying, but I, I guess I, I, sometimes you can, I, when I equate happiness with contentment, then I push against it because I don't want to yeah. be content. Yeah, it makes sense. There's more stuff yeah. I want to do. There's more experiences I want to have. There's more work I want to do. So what about that person who wants to have what you have? What's what's the bit of advice you would give them? Get in a time machine. Go back to uh, 1995. Because that, you know, th th that's the thing. No one is going to have a career like I've had. They're going to have their own career. Right. You yeah. know, everybody's going to have their own path that they take. And... The only, I mean, I don't even, I hate giving advice. The only thing I would say to anybody is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Do not discount any opportunity or any um, experience that even if it seems like there's a chance you might get screwed, if you feel like you can get something out of it on a personal level, do it. Yeah. Because there's only one, uh, you, you only regret the things that you don't do. Yeah. You know, you can you know, have mixed emotions about the things you chose to do, but I've never regretted any of the things I did that didn't turn out the way I thought they would yeah. because you learn something from them. No matter what you learn something. And that's what it's all about. You know? Yeah. Uh, this would just be a perfect place to end, but I did want to ask you one last thing. If you have time, well, I just get warmed up. Come on, let's go. Oh, awesome. Perfect. <laughs> What's a, we some heavier topics. What's something really charming. You, you, you've worked with a lot of really great people in uh, any, any kind of fun stories, any, any kind of fun moments you remember that you just you kind of, when you're, when you're thinking about the kind of happier, simpler things in comics, what are, what is, what is something fun that you, you remember? <laughs> well, I, I could go the other direction. I'm not usually that kind of channel. No, no, no. I, I you know, I, it's one of those things. Like, it's hard to pick out like certain things. Or, I mean, if For you sure. act, if you actually love making comics, then then the making of them is so satisfying. And such a, it scratches an itch that you didn't really even know could be scratched before you did it. And I, and I guess from a, as being a writer, it's that comes from collaboration with artists mainly, because I've worked with some of the coolest artists. You know, I mean, look, let's go back to Cable. One of the things that was really important about getting that book was the fact that the art was by this artist named Jose Ladrone. Mm -hmm. and he was so great and by the way they marvel with the balls to print he was like talk about he was a big jack kirby fan obviously you know that from his work yeah just like kirby in the 70s marvel would print letters in cable where people were saying what what is with this art i hate this art <laughs> yeah and i at the time i was like jesus christ i mean okay i guess equal time but fuck man this guy's a genius Yes. And and by the way, they took him off cable. They fired him off cable. Yeah, that was because, insane, by the way. Yeah, which is why I left, you know. Yeah, well, good uh, for you, because that was a, one of the dumbest things they've done. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, look, again, 
probably for 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 Jose, it was a good thing, you know. I mean, it, it let him go on to do other things that he wanted to do, you know. Um, but yeah, it was it was very short sighted. So I started out of the gate working with really great artists, and it, you know, I've never been one of those guys that I kind of went into it with sort of unspoken rules. One was I didn't want to work with any of my heroes. Mm -hmm. And two, that I didn't really want to work with the quote unquote hot artists. Yeah. Um, so I just looked for collaborators that I liked personally. So that's where, you know, I worked with, I worked with the drone on cable. I worked with Leonardo Manco on um, Deathlock. I worked with Javier Polito on the Hulk. I worked with Ed McGinnis on Mr. Majestic. I'm trying to, I worked, I mean, the only hero that I worked with early on was Steve Rude on Children mm -hmm. of the Atom. Yeah. Yeah. And that was worth it because he's, he was so great and just amazing on all kinds of levels. But then, you know, but so I just wanted to have uh, collaborations with, with people that I thought were interesting. I, I, I know that I, I brought um, Fraser Irving to Marvel to do that first Iron Man miniseries. I brought Chris yep. Weston to Marvel to do a nice. Fantastic Four miniseries. Um, and they'd never heard of these guys. You know, they hadn't heard of them at the time. You did a series with uh, Eric Canetti, who we've talked to on this channel before, who's uh, an incredible talent as well. Yeah, I worked with Eric at Wildstorm first. I put him, I got him in to do some issues of Mr. Majestic. Yeah. Um, yeah, and had him and did it, got him some work at Marvel doing Deathlock. That's right. Uh, he did nice. a couple of fill-ins on Deathlock. Um, so, you know, um, I'm kind of, if it, I'm proud of those collaborations, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, because they're, they're distinctive. I mean, I don't think anybody else would have thought to have Fraser Irving do a Marvel Iron Man comic, mm -hmm. you know, no one would have thought to put Chris Weston on Fantastic Four. No one would have thought to, you know, I mean, we brought Ed McGinnis to Wildstorm to do Mr. Majestic and they you got Superman off that gig. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Totally stole him away. Um so if anything, I mean, and my and the guys I worked with at Image, I was one of the first guys to work with Chris Burnham. Um nice. the, the 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 book I did a couple of years ago called 1975 with this artist named Ian McEwen. Mm -hmm. That guy's fantastic. Super cool. Um <laughs> did a book with Benjamin Mara called Jesus freak a couple years ago. And I think Ben Mara's a genius too, you know? Yeah. So I'm very, um, I kind of, I'm kind of picky, but I take a lot of pride in, in the people that I seek out to collaborate with. Yeah. And, um, one of your collaborators you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Mike Rango, um, who, you know, has since, uh, passed. Do you have any, uh, you know, good stories for, for a lot of people who, who might be listening to this that missed out on, on Mike Rango's years as, uh, as an artist. He was a sweet guy, a very humble, modest guy. Um, I felt um, I felt bad for him when we were doing Superman because he felt like he was feeling the pressure of living up to Ed McGinnis, who was doing the main Superman book. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, I love Ed, but Ringo was a master and he did a great Superman. And I don't know if he felt that way on other books that he had done, 
but um, he was just a really nice guy. And I think, you know, I don't think he was, he wasn't underrated because everybody knew he was great. Yeah. But I just felt like he was um, a singular kind of artist at the time that he was really firing on all cylinders. You know, he was his own yeah. beast, you know, and, and, so I just was, you know, I feel feel privileged to have worked with him and to have worked with him on Superman, which he hadn't done before. And um I thought he was I thought he was fantastic on that book. And you know, and the other things that he'd done were I mean, he just never did a bad job as far as I could see. Every, everything I ever saw him do was great. He never had an off day or an off gig. And no, that's rare. He was incredibly humble too. Of all the people I've met. Uh, he was he was one of the most humble people I think I've ever come across. Yeah, he was a real real sweet guy, and I I don't even remember why he stopped working on Superman. I, maybe the, the 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 schedule just got whacked out or whatever. But um, we did about I don't know a little under a year together, mm-hmm. and uh, and like I said, that was when I and I I pushed on him this formalist approach I was talking about earlier. I said, hey. You ever seen Sin City, you know, Mike? He was like, yeah. Well, we're going to do Superman like this. And he was like, okay. And he did it. <laughs> and he, and I was still pretty new, and he'd been around. He could have easily said, you know what? Forget that. I'm just going to do what I do, and it's going to be great. And it would have been great. Yeah. But he was a real collaborative guy, and he was willing to go with me on this thing. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, I, re- I, I, re- I appreciate it at the time. I appreciate it now. He was, he was one of the greats. That's awesome. I, that's going to be the, the perfect place to, to kind of, I, I mean, I appreciate you giving us more than an hour here and, and I could listen to your stories about a lot of these people you worked with and your own work. I mean, you've, you've, like I said, you've written a tremendous amount of stuff and now I'm, I'm watching my kids get into your work through a completely different medium, which is, uh, which is fun too. That's and I mean, I will say that's a, a real trip because unlike comics, I was not an animation guy when I was a kid. I just, I, you know, and, the way it, these things turn into a career is some things you fall into and the Ben 10 thing was a fluke, you know, total fluke. And that led to, you know, we, we went off to, to launch the Spider-Man show on Disney XD, the, the, the Avengers cartoon on Disney XD. We did a Mega Man show. We're doing Sonic now we're doing other things. I mean, it awesome. it opened up a whole avenue that I didn't think I would go down, and the and how it relates to comics is, and this is I, I mean this is advice I could give to somebody, diversify in your career, because if you uh, as a as a freelancer or an independent contractor or whatever you want to call yourself, as a creative in this entertainment business, if you put all your eggs in one basket, you're just setting yourself up for trouble, because if I'd have thought that I was going to just do work for higher comics for the rest of my life, I'd be in big trouble now, big, big trouble. And getting into animation and getting into that space allowed me to keep doing comics without the pressure of having to, you know, pay my bills with it, you know, which was huge. And I didn't even realize at the time that I was like, wow, this is, I'm, I'm being able to, I'm able to do these image comics in, in a way that is completely free of any, I mean, 
to be quite honest, any commercial demands. I, I didn't feel the pressure to sell one copy of the things I was doing. And sometimes they didn't sell anything. Sometimes they did, but I was able to create outside of the environment of, holy shit, if, if this comic doesn't sell, then I don't eat, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it changed my the whole trajectory of how I could look at comics as an art form because ultimately, once you break in and once you kind of go through a couple of um, uh, regime changes in at the big two especially, but just in the industry in general, what you realize is that if, if you're in it for life, you're in it for the art, you're in it for the, for the medium itself, the love of the medium, because when you break in and you're part of the industry and you're, you people know who you are, editors, other creators, you do get caught up in the, the showbiz of it all. You know, yeah. wow, I'm in comics. I mean, you know, I mean, there was um, my first few San Diego Comic Cons as a pro. The, the place to go was the top of the Hyatt. And this was when yeah. there was only one Hyatt Tower. Mm-hmm. And the bar at the top, I swear to you, you could go up there on a Friday or Saturday night and pretty much be around almost everybody you could think of that was currently working at Marvel and DC editors, you know, artists, writers, you know, everybody. It was amazing. And, you know, that's, a, you know, when you're first coming into that environment, it's pretty heady. For sure. You know, you're like, you know, you're, wow, this is, I'm in it. I'm in this fucking business. I can't believe it. It's Once not a very big room either up there. Um, no, it was tiny. I couldn't, I mean, it was, I mean, it got to the point where I remember having conversations out in the hallway, you know, yep. where the elevators were, because that's, it was just spill out that far because you couldn't get a seat in there. It was just like standing room only. And, and you don't want to be on that, that lobby floor bar because that one was, uh, that was ass. You, you want to be on no, top. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of, yeah, it was a status symbol in a, in a way. Yeah. And, and, when, and when you, and when you made it up there, you actually, felt like you'd made something of your life. You know? For sure. Now that's completely stupid. And I acknowledge that right here and now, but at the time I, you know, I was, I, you get sort of intoxicated by the fact that you actually quote unquote made it. Yep. But if you're going to be in it for a while, you got to get over that shit quick. And I, and I guess you could equate the top of the Hyatt bar to having, you know, 50,000 followers on Twitter or whatever. I mean, it's the same rush, I imagine. Absolutely. But yeah. that has nothing to do with the with the art and the artistry of making comics, you know? I mean, nothing. And when you can get back to that, it's like finding your true north. That, you know, it, like I said, I got a couple things. I'm working on a couple things right now that have very long lead times, like really long, like years. Um, things that I'm just finishing writing that you will probably not see in print for another two years. Wow. So if, if I was all about the, the ego boost of release date, you know, like, Oh, what's everybody going to say when this thing comes out? What are they, what's the conversation going to be around my latest project or whatever, then I'd be fucked right now. Cause it's so far into the future. I can't even, I, it's hard to contemplate how far in the future. Some of this stuff that I'm working on is like, I got from, I mean, this is, I'm working on something for DC, working on something for Image, working on one of my own things. These things are going to be a long time coming. But I feel no pressure because I'm making them. You know, I'm in the yeah. process of making them. And that is its 
own reward. And if you're in it for that, then, and if you have the opportunities to keep making comics, which now everybody does, then aside from the doom and gloom I said before, about I have no kids reading. I'm not at all concerned about the, the survival of the medium itself because there are enough of us that still hang in there and new people come in all the time that get the buzz off the making of the thing, you know, and just the act of creation as its own experience and beyond whatever response it gets, or even if it ever comes out at all, if you love making shit, then I, you're going to be all right. You know, I, I love that. Joe, hey, thank you very much for spending all this time talking with us. And, and it's been a real pleasure getting to, getting to chat with you. And I, I hope we can catch up again soon. Yeah, when I can talk about the things I've got going on, I'm, I'll be happy to come back because there's it's some cool shit. It's some cool, cool shit. Excellent. Well, I, I, I yeah. So these far-reaching plans. So I think Joe just revealed he will be the writer after the Hickman era of X Men is done. He'll be rebooting <laughs> it. So there you go, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if that goes viral, I'm in big trouble. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I don't, it would take you know a team of oxen to drag me back into that office again. <laughs> Flat denial. There we go. Uh, yeah. Joe uh, Joe Corral, thank you as well for joining. And and Joe, like I said, we'll we'll catch up with you again. I'm sure real soon. Great.